0: Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, Momo, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, although you're obviously a very different culture, um, many of what, much of what you are sharing is on our hearts too. The issue of how we, uh, uh, how we actually become and make disciples of the kingdom of God in our communities, that's extremely relevant for our, our current topic and subject that we're talking about, what I'm going to talk about today. And so it's a joy to welcome you. And um, I guess I want to say just that, um, you know, if, uh, if £150 a month is needed, um, I reckon that as a church we could fund the first two months of that quite easily just out of some of our giving budget. So we can sort that out. And if you guys want to be part of that as well, speak to Mervyn or come to see Momo um, M- 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 tomorrow and hear a little bit more about that. That would be great. Um, if you, that's okay, no problem. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to it. You might have it on your phone or um, on an iPad, or on the actual book itself. And if you turn to the book of Mark, and then just keep your finger in there, because I'm not quite going to get there yet, but I am going to get there soon. How's everybody doing today? Thank you. (laughs) It's good to know you. Good to know. Um, Right. Can you pop my first slide up? Yes. Last year there was a survey done. Um, it was, was kind of called the Talking Jesus Survey. And um, what it was was a whole bunch of church leaders who uh, came together um, with the aim of trying to find out a little bit more about what people in this country actually know and believe about Jesus. OK, so it was a kind of, you know, it's all very well as being church and doing church and having, talking about people who don't come to church and people who don't know Jesus. They thought they'd actually do a proper scientific survey and find out and uh, not just what they know and believe about Jesus, but what people think about the people that follow Jesus, what people actually think about Christians in this country and how are the actions of Christians affecting people who don't call themselves Christians, people who don't know Jesus. In other words, what are the, one of the key questions is, is what we're doing helping to draw people towards Jesus or actually helping to turn them away from Jesus? And I thought you might be interested just to hear a couple of the results of this survey. Are you interested? Yeah, because I'm interested. And you can find all this stuff, by the way, on... Uh, there's a website called Talking Jesus. Um, interestingly, <clears throat> there are 57% of this country... This is England, by the way, not Scotland and Wales as well, just England. That's, we're not against Scotland and Wales, but that's just what the survey, um, or Ireland indeed, but that's just what the survey uh, was, was looking at. And there are 57% of people who self-identify and say that the, 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 the Christian best describes their faith. 57%. Isn't that incredible? Um, the, these guys dug a, a little bit deeper and said, OK, so what about what we would call, they use the word practicing Christians. And what they mean by that is people who... Report to pray or read the Bible or attend church at least once monthly. Okay, so that's how they defined for the purpose of this survey a practicing Christian. Turns out there are 9% of this country of England who would claim to be practicing Christians. That's just under 10% of the adult English population who are practicing, would, would own up to being practicing Christians. Isn't that interesting? Now you know you can make stats say anything, so I'm not here to make you know one point or another. Some of you might be impressed by that, some of you might be shocked by that. But that's that's what the survey said. There are about just under ten percent of the adults in this country in England who claim to be practicing Christians. And um, what about those Christians? Of those practicing Christians, how do we how do we get to that? How how did those arrive at that? Well, this is interesting. Many English practicing Christians attribute their faith to growing up in a Christian home. So 40% of practising Christians, just over 40%, attribute their faith to growing up in a Christian family. And the rest, um, as you can see, a journey over time, several key decisions. Um, Isn't that interesting? So the most positive Christian influence is a Christian family. Isn't that interesting? Um, What about this one? Uh, Most English practising Christians credit their friends... For introducing them to Jesus. So the, the, the dark purple is practicing Christians, the light purple is um, non-practicing Christians. But 44% of those of us who are practicing Christians, those who are following Jesus, say that we're doing it because of our friends, and then because of our family. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Nice. I agree. I um, agree what about the wider population? Then that's the practicing Christians. What about the wider population of this country? What about the English adult population? What do they think about God? Well, two in five English adults believe that the Bible is actually God's word. 40%, just under 40%, believe that the Bible is God's word. Isn't that interesting? Only 9% practice Christianity, but 40% believe the Bible is God's word. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, What about this one? Um, Six in ten English adults believe that Jesus was a real person. By the way, these these different um, colours are just um, demographic age splits. So the first one is, the the sort of grey one is everybody, and then they're split into under 35s and over 35s. But Jesus was a real person who actually lived. 60% believe that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. Who was Jesus, do they think? Well, 20% of those people believe that he was God. 60% 60% believe he actually lived, 20% believe he was God in human form. Isn't that interesting? So one in ten are practicing Christians, but two in ten believe that Jesus was God. Yeah, Isn't that interesting? What, are the, what about the, whole, the population as a whole? What about their perceptions of Christians, of us, of those that follow Jesus? Well, most English non-Christians say they know a Christian. 67% report to knowing a Christian. Most of them, you'll see from the breakdown, are family or friends. Most of them are family or friends. What do they think of those Christians? Here's the key question. Well, according to this survey, which is a really credible survey, English non-Christians attribute more positive than negative qualities to the Christians they know. So again, just keep your eyes on the grey figures for now. 65% think that they're friendly. By the way, they could tick more than one box here. They don't all add up to 100 Okay, they could tick more than one on box. Sixty-five percent of people who know a Christian think that that person's friendly. Fifty-one percent of them think they're caring. Forty-six percent of them think they're good-humoured. Thirty-eight percent generous, and, and on it goes. Comparatively, they attach much, few, much many fewer negative uh, people attach negative qualities to the Christians. There are a few. There are a few here. 13 um, percent think Christians are narrow-minded. Ten percent think they're hypocritical and uptight homophobic, etc. But the good news is that most people who know us think we're all right. Isn't that good news? What about sharing Jesus? What about evangelism? What about what happens when the Christians talk to the non-Christians about Jesus? Well, more than half of English non-Christians who know a Christian have had a conversation with them about Jesus. Or roughly, that's just under 40% of English non-Christians, of all English non-Christians, have had a conversation about Jesus with a Christian. Isn't that interesting? What happened as a result of that conversation? I can hear you asking. Okay, What happened as a result? Well, here are just... And this is the last slide I'm going to show you. Here are just some of the responses. On the positive side, 19% said they wanted to know more about Jesus Christ. And 20% said they were open to an experience or an encounter with Jesus. If you track that down, about 53% said they felt comfortable. On the negative side... Nearly 60% said they didn't want to know more about Jesus. Now, of course, I don't know who the conversation they were having with was with, and I don't know what that was about. So, you can, again, you can read a lot into stats, but I'm encouraged because what I see there is that there's 40% of people who kind of do want to know more about Jesus Christ. And I'm really happy to start there. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm really happy to start there. Jesus talks about that, doesn't he? When he says, go to this house, he's talking to the disciples, and he sends them out and he says, go and find the person of peace, the man of peace. There are people who are willing to listen and know more. There are people who are wanting to find out more about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And of course, you know, one in five of the people you know, think about that. So if you, look, if you, if you were to, you don't have to do this now, but you can get out your phone and go down your contacts list. And just go, every fifth person, on average, wants to know more about Jesus. Every fifth person who knows me potentially wants to know more about Jesus. Which ones are they? Isn't that interesting? Now, as I said, you can use stats to say whatever you like. So I'm not here to sort of... I just thought it was really interesting to me that it shows that we have an incredible opportunity for influence. An incredible opportunity... There's a whole host of people out there who are open to finding out more about Jesus. So if I'm going to take Jesus seriously and the discipleship challenge seriously, you know, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's our theme for today and for this, this month. Go and make disciples of all nations. Then one simple goal for me might just be to identify that 20% of people in my contact list who actually want to know more. The people in my community or network or circle that, that are my people of peace. See, last week we talked about how a disciple literally just means a follower and that our aim is to be followers of Jesus. We've started to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Is it measurable? How do we measure that? We believe, you see, that God has invited us to partner with him in leading our communities into life. We believe he has kingdom dreams for our cities and our towns and our neighborhoods, for our networks, for our friends and our schools, our colleagues. We believe that Jesus wants to bring hope and freedom and peace and the presence of God to bear on the places around us and the people around us. Just like Momo was describing the vision of the church in Freetown. And if we're going to do that effectively, then one of our key tasks as a church is to be making disciples who make disciples. Making disciples who make a difference. Not making disciples who sit in church and suck up more information. Making disciples who are out there doing this stuff. Do you want to be that kind of disciple? Because honestly, I really do. Challenging as it is, scary as it is, I really want that. So, some of the questions that we're asking at the minute are how is it that following Jesus changes everything in a person's life? Everything. How is it that my community or my workplace or my city or my street is going to change because there are disciples of Jesus present? You might be the only disciple of Jesus in your network. How is that place going to change? And how do we as a church become and make disciples that change communities? And there's no doubt, by the way, that we are making disciples. Oh, we're really good at that. The question is, what kind of disciples are we making? There's no doubt that we are making disciples of Jesus. What kind of disciples are we making? And last week I talked about the broad picture of discipleship. I said that basically, in in its broadest sense, discipleship is about three things. It's about restoration... God's overall rescue and restoring plan for the world. It's about the destiny of nations, nations, nations like the one we've just been hearing about cities and nations and communities. That's how transformation works. God's heart is that freed and transformed and healed individuals are part of a bigger story. And we said that discipleship is about fruit bearing, and I ran out of time last week. I didn't really get to say much about that. Um, I just want to, I, but I did say this, and I'll remind you of it because it's important: that in the area of procreation, healthy intimacy leads to fruitfulness. I can see you all going, "What's he talking about?" <laughs> do, do I need to spell it out further? Okay, that we are, if we're looking for some kind of measure as to how successful our discipleship is, how successful our, and how real our intimacy with God is and how that's growing, then the test is to see how fruitful we are becoming. So I'm going to give you a really simple definition of discipleship. Okay, Really simple definition. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? There are four points. Okay, I think this. A disciple of Jesus looks like somebody who speaks his words. Oh, that's wrong. I should say words. I thought I would change that this morning spell checker, who does his works, who follows his ways, and who shares his wounds. There's a whole sermon in there, and luckily you're not going to get that sermon from me this morning. You're going to get that from Jo next week. She's going to explore in more details practically what that looks like. I want to talk about the process by which we change to become more like Jesus. How does that happen? My my question today is how? How do we change? How does our character change? What is the best climate for discipleship or for character change or for character growth? What is the best climate for that to happen? I want to introduce an idea to you and then I want us to look at the Bible together. Okay? And what I want to do is I want to talk about these two concepts. What is the best climate? What are the key elements of discipleship, of growing In our discipleship of Jesus, growing in character change. Well, one of the key elements, this is according to the perceived wisdom, one of those key elements is community. Okay, we need community. It's very, very hard. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to follow Jesus when you're on your own in it. We need people around us who are helping us to do this journey together. Whether that looks like a church context, a small group, whether it's a prayer triplet or a Christian union, we need community. We need friends around us. And then the other sort of part of the perceived wisdom is that we need some sort of content. We need some information. We need to understand a bit more about the Bible. We need to read it and understand who Jesus was and and why his teaching was so radical and how we apply that to our lives and, and what the early church did and who God is. So we need community and we need content. And when we put those together, we get disciples. And I just wonder if there's something missing from that, because we've been doing this. The church has been doing this for years and years, but we still, in general, haven't managed to create the kind of disciples who really go and impact communities. Not that we're seeing enough, not that we're seeing very much fruitfulness, not for who we are. And I just wonder if there's something missing. You see, we've got the community and we've got the content. You could say that we do those really well here. I wonder what's missing, though. Because although we've been doing this, it's, it's not really happening. And this combination of community and content on its own hasn't created whole world disciples. The thing that's missing, I wonder, what it can you guess? Pardon? Good guess, but no. No? Yes. It actually does. And it's not courage. It's not chocolate either, no. No. <laughs> Okay, it's something that Jesus and his disciples had all of the time that they were making disciples. It's this, it's context. It's context. It's context. See, Momo has just described and shown us some photographs so that we can see his context for how he's making disciples in their church. Discipleship doesn't happen Without context, it was present with Jesus and his disciples pretty much throughout his ministry. And what I mean by that is, I mean the environments that we're actually in. You see, we don't create or become disciples in a vacuum, we're in a context, and that context will and should shape our spiritual growth, our spiritual formation. So, I mean the places that we spend most of our week. The places where we interact with people who don't know Jesus. You see, Jesus constantly modeled discipleship among people. It was dynamic. It was moving. It never stood still. And I think it's possible for us sometimes to read the Bible through a little bit of a sort of romantic lens. You know, oh, Jesus and his disciples, lots of quality time. You know, if you were one of Jesus' followers, you went and had your hours one-to-one every week. Do you not imagine that's what it was like? I mean, we read about a few little interactions. I don't think it was like that. The truth is, most of the time, they didn't really have time to eat. They just cut on with the ministry. They just moved. I don't get the impression that they went on many weekend retreats. Every time they had an interaction with the crowd, it became an opportunity for them to grow. Yeah? Are you following me? Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus would be ministering. The disciples would be watching, perhaps helping, usually making some kind of Mistake and Jesus would always use it as a learning opportunity. Just think of these examples. The disciples stop the children from bothering Jesus, leave them alone. Jesus says, No, 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 let them come to me. The disciples arrive and say, We've got 5,000 people here and the wives and children, there's probably more, and we've only got this amount of food. How are we going to feed them? Jesus says, Just watch this. The disciples can't cast out an evil spirit in a guy. How, why can't we do this, Jesus? This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. He's teaching them, yes, but he's teaching them in context. You know, they go out, they get sent out to minister and they come back and they're so giddy and they're so full of it. And they say, God, you know what, even the demons, they, even the demons disappeared when we spoke your name. Isn't that amazing? Look how cool we are. And Jesus says, that's not, that's brilliant, but that's not what you need to rejoice about. Rejoice that God knows you. Spiritual growth occurred throughout the New Testament as Jesus' disciples sought to serve the destiny of others. Context and content are all crucial to kingdom discipleship. There's no distinction biblically. Okay, there's no distinction. Spiritual formation or character growth or discipleship happens in the context of mission. Jesus was at the same time the most spiritual and the most missional Person that you would ever read about, and so if we're trying to be his disciples, then we need to we need to be doing the same. You know, effective discipling organisations do this. If you go on a a sort of discipling course or a discipling project, and if you go away with some sort of organisation, what will they do? They will take you on a mission as part of that program because they know that you only really grow as you go. You know, here's another way of showing the same thing that I found on the internet. All three elements are essential for effective discipleship. The right climate for character change is to is among people who don't yet know Jesus. And yeah, this is challenging. Anybody, is anybody challenged by this? It is challenging because we've adopted an idea in church that the best place to become a disciple of Jesus is right here in church. Honestly, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. We don't need to believe that. Now, I'm not dissing church, I'm not down on church, and I don't think Jesus is either. I love you guys. (laughs) I love our church. I love the community we've got here. But this isn't the prime place for us to become disciples of Jesus. It's not the prime context. We're only here for a couple of hours a week. Everywhere else, we're there for a lot further. Let's look at how this is played out. I hear you saying that's a great idea, Nigel. Where is it in the Bible? Okay, turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to read a story. Okay, we're going to read the story of a fella who's commonly become nicknamed as the Gadarene demoniac. You know, whenever I look up these Bible stories, I see all these sort of sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century paintings, and they're all a bit like I can't really relate to them. And I found this one, and I thought I can relate to that guy. Um, (coughs) I didn't mean that like that. I can relate to this story and that guy being like that. What are, you, what, are you, what are you heckling now? Yeah. You think it looks like me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's read Mark 5. They went to the lake. They went across the lake, Jesus and his disciples, to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. That's already a no-no, by the way, in terms of Jewish faith and culture. Okay, he's living among the dead. The man lived in the tombs. But as you know, the the place where this happened isn't part of Galilee. It's across the lake. He lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to, to subdue him. So night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Does anybody know anybody who's had a similar experience to that? Yeah, a few of us. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of the voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. So despite him being sort of completely out of it, completely, you know, I mean, just, just all hell breaking loose. Despite all of that, he still, all the demons inside him still recognized who Jesus was. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. That's another reason that you know this isn't Jewish culture. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. So he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs rang off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by this legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Do you think that's maybe an understatement? (laughs) And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and, what, and told the, what happens to the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus, please leave our region. It freaked them out, man. Completely freaked them out. Not the guy and his crazy behaviour, that didn't freak them out. Jesus kind of setting that guy free, that's what freaked them out. Now that's an amazing story, and we could spend hours just dwelling on the whole... You know, there's a plan about demonization and, you know, ministry and all that. But that's not really the bit I want to get to. That is the the background to the story. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But instead he says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away. And began to tell in the Decapolis, which is his region, how much Jesus had done for him. And all were amazed. This guy was in so much need. He was in so much deep distress. I mean, to be cutting yourself, that's distress. And isn't that just a beautiful story about how Jesus steps out of his own world and into this guy's world to meet him and bring about the most incredible and powerful encounter I mean, it's dramatic. Sometimes it doesn't happen that quickly. But in this case, it was dramatic. The change was dramatic. This was this guy's spiritual birthday. What an incredible dramatic change. And what happens next? Jesus signs him up to the program, takes him under his wing. Come and have some one-to-ones with me and my fellas. We'll sort you out. Sign up to our Discipleship 101 course. Is that what happened? I'm not reading that in the text. I'd like to because it would make me feel more comfortable probably. He becomes part of Jesus' small group. They start praying together. They start learning the Bible together. It didn't happen. What was the process of discipleship that this guy went through? He comes to Jesus. He says, can I join you? Jesus says, no. You're not coming to my church. You can't come in my crowd. These are your people over here. Now you need to go to them. How did this guy grow in his discipleship? It was by telling his story. Simply telling his story. Come, and, and, he, and of course he could tell it and people could see that what, what he was talking about was true because they kind of knew him or they knew about him. Jesus didn't invite him into his gang. He invited him into something much, much, much bigger and broader. Jesus invited him into his story, into God's big story god's enormous world-changing story what kind of a story is that let me remind you it's a story of restoration did this guy experience restoration absolutely you've been restored he says and what god's done for you he wants to do for others now go and tell the whole world about what's happened this is a foretaste of heaven for him How many of you have had some kind of healing or restoration or transformation story? It doesn't have to be as dramatic as his. Go on in your life. Something that's made a significant difference. This is a foretaste of heaven. This is where discipleship starts. Restoration. And where does it lead? To the restoration of the whole world. To God making all things new. Every single one of those stories is a miracle. Every single one of those stories is worth celebrating. But it ain't the end. It's just the start. We just don't have time to tell it properly today, Jenny, but Jenny has an incredible story, which I'd love you to tell next week if you're here. Okay? It's because Joe's preaching next week, so, you know, we're fine. Um, (laughs) I'm teasing. We just have too many stories to say. An incredible story of transformation. I'm going to. That's a trailer. You should be here next week. It's a story not just of restoration, it's a story of nations. It's a story of nations. You see all these. Black dots here, and that's the Decapolis. It's the region on that side of the Sea of Galilee. This happened, they reckon, about where the S of Sea of Galilee is, somewhere, somewhere around there. That's where this thing happened. I went past it in a coach. Unfortunately, our tour wouldn't stop for us, so we just had to like, quickly take photos out of the window, which aren't very good, so I didn't think it was worth showing them. The Decapolis was a different region from where Jesus normally hung out. This guy was the first evangelist to the Decapolis region. Some of us are called to nations. Johnny and Beth, for example, they'll be sharing with us in a few weeks over in Tajikistan. Some of us are called to invest in nations. We've talked about that this morning. Those of you who are involved in Karis Kids in Uganda, similar type of story, investing in nations. But all of us are called to invest in networks, communities, cities, workplaces, environments, wherever. The nation-creating discipleship of Jesus starts for you. I heard this week about one of our um, chaps here. He, um, he won't run me telling you this. He he's part of a company that um, that owns and and manages and rents uh, rooms uh, for people to to let to rent. And uh, one of the things that they're doing is that they're just kind of thinking about how they can have more of a pastoral impact on the people who are living in the rooms that they rent. I mean, they don't have any obligation to do that legally, but they're just thinking about how can we make a difference in these people's lives? How can we do something that's going to support people? Because often when people are living on their own, there's some other issues going on, not always, but but sometimes. How can we be more aware and caring as landlords? What a wonderful story. So this is a story of nations, and it's a story of fruitfulness. And if you turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31... You can get an idea of the results of what happened when this guy went back to the Decapolis and told everybody what had happened. This is the next in the the book of Mark. This is the next reference we have to the Decapolis. It's seven thirty-one. It says Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And there, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So Jesus now has a reputation that goes in front of him in this area. Why is that? Now, I don't know enough to say for sure, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that I can guess that, that this guy whose name we don't even know, the first evangelist to the Decapolis, I'm pretty sure that he had something to do with it. You just go on to chapter 8 and verse 1, and it says, During those days, another large crowd gathered in the Decapolis. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples. And there's a whole other story about a feeding of a crowd. How many is in that crowd? 4,000 people. So this one guy, he could have joined Jesus' gang. He could have gone for his one-on-ones. He could have you know, grown in his faith and gone deeper with God. But Jesus says, no, that's not what I want. That, that isn't the be- this isn't the best context for you. The best context for you to grow in your faith is to go and be among the people that you came from and tell them what has happened to you. And what is the result of that? The result of it is that 4,000 people show up next time Jesus comes to town. I'd love that kind of um, fruitfulness, would you? I'd love to say that 4,000 people came to an event that I put on. Hey guys, Jesus is coming to town. Come and hear him. Yes, yeah, step right up. <laughs> Let me um, just read you briefly what Tom Wright says about this guy. He's a Bible scholar. I quote him sometimes because he's really good. He says, notice how precisely as part of that healing, Jesus doesn't let the man stay with him. He isn't to become, in that sense, dependent on Jesus. He is to stand on his own feet, depending on Jesus in a different way. He is to find a new life back in his own community, telling in non-Jewish areas what Jesus has done. Sometime before St. Paul coined the phrase, this unnamed but beloved man seems to have become the first apostle to the Gentiles. And when Momo was talking about church planting, that's exactly the same deal. Why do we plant churches? Because we want to go to communities where, where it's an authentic place for us to be and say, Jesus needs to be present here too. The hope and the life and the transformation of Jesus needs to be present. So just like the story of the woman at the well that I read last week, Talked about the discipleship process that Jesus espouses is not cosy and it's not particularly comfortable and it's not process-driven and you don't get a tick list of things to achieve. But it's all about context. It's all strategic and it's all about context. He doesn't call us to go and find some other Christians and help them go a bit deeper in their faith. This is about breadth as much as it's about depth. John Wimber said the meat is on the street. We grow as we go, we grow as we go. So, to sum up what I'm trying to say to you, content without context. If you get the Bible, but you don't have anywhere to work out what it means, it just produces apathy. We just can't be able to go anywhere or do anything. If we've got the opposite, if we've got the context, but we don't have the content, then we don't really know what we believe and what makes a difference anyway, and we end up with heresy. But here it comes. Drum roll, please. Ta-da. Content and context produces destiny. And the truth is, for many of us, we get swallowed up by the church culture. And we find it increasingly hard to relate to people in the context that we first came from. I don't want us to allow our church culture to so influence us that we aren't able to relate to people who don't know anything about what this is about. Just sometimes the acid testimony is, could I bring them, could I bring somebody into this room? Would they be freaked out? I don't know. Sometimes some of my friends, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. I'm not saying much about, I don't want to talk about the church, I want to talk about out there. I love what we do here. I just don't want to spend all my time here so that I forget to relate to people who don't come to church. Now, I've got a particular, <clears throat> this is an issue for me, I spend most of my time here. I have to go and find context. The beautiful thing for you guys is that most of you are paid to be out there and doing this stuff. The challenge for me and for Joe, is we've, as we've been here for the last two or three years, is where is our authentic community? Where has God placed us? Where can we live out our lives other than the church so that we can just interact with and hang out with and get to know people who might be part of that 20%? That's a challenge. That's a challenge for us. We're sort of trying to do it. I just want to say a word to creatives. I heard this amazing story about a pastor who, um, somebody came to him in church and they said, We want to dance in church. He said, Okay, tell, tell me more. They said, Well, we, we, <laughs> we love to dance and God made us to dance and we love to dance and we want to dance in church. It's part of who we are. He said, I love that you want to dance in church. I love that God's made you creative, but I don't want you to dance in church. I want you to dance out in the community. If God has given you that creative gift, then it is to bring hope and life out there. You will limit what you can do by just aiming to dance here. And they didn't take that very well the first time. But when they went away and thought about it and prayed about it, they felt like God said to go and open a dance school, which is what they did. So now they have 200 kids coming to their dance school every week in the community centre. And they're shaping lives and they're bringing hope and they're interacting and they're mixing. And that would have never have happened if he'd have said, yeah, yeah, come and dance in church. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? It's just a particular word, particularly for those of you who are creatives. You know, I'm a musician and I love to play music and I really miss not playing music in church very much. But I really felt like God said I was supposed to put my musical gift into running a community choir instead. It's hard work. It's different for me. I don't get all the glory. I don't get to play, which I really love doing. And yet it's what I felt like God told me to do so that we could be involved in our community more. So that we could bring hope and bring life and disciple, try and be disciples and make disciples in our community. If you're an artist or a speaker or a poet or a politician or a sportsman or a counsellor or a businessman or a teacher, whatever God has called you to be, the context for you to grow in your discipleship is where he's put you. So the last question is, what is preventing us from doing that? What fears do we have that are stopping us from doing that? Stopping us fully entering into God's story in our context. Are we, is, it, is it a fear that we're somehow missing out because there's something going on in the church and we're not there? Is it a fear about safety? Is it a fear about holiness? What, I mean, you mean, I have to mix with people who have different values to me. Some of those people are just not very nice. They don't play nice. Yeah, you have that, don't you? Those of you who've got kids, you've had this conversation with your kids. They came home from school and such and such a kid has done this, they have different values to us, they're just not playing nicely. And what do you do? You empower them to go back in there and find the words and you know, not respond retaliate badly and all of that. What are our fears? Because if our goal is to make disciples who are laying down their lives for the sake of the kingdom, if our goal is to impact, to so impact our communities, that the disciples in that community are making a difference and seeing transformation and change, then it has to start with us. And we have to, we have to with the help of God, get over our fears. I think I've said enough. Shall we stand? Why don't we just stand and invite the Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Father, for your ministry here to us. Why don't you come back, band, and anybody who wants to come and help me with ministry, come. (laughs) Holy Spirit, we welcome you, we thank you. I just want to thank you, Father, that you have placed every single one of us into a context, sometimes multiple contexts, for us to grow in our discipleship, for us to grow as disciples and making disciples. I want to thank you, Lord that you've placed us in a context. Now show us, for those of us who are doubting this, Holy Spirit, come and show us what our context is. Some of us know absolutely what our context is. We know where we're supposed to be and we just, we just need to acknowledge that and say, Lord, yeah, I'm there. I know where you've called me. What's your word for me for that place for this week? When I go in there tomorrow or today or this week, may I go in empowered, filled with your spirit and ready to bring hope and life. And if that's you and you'd love us to pray and commission you, we'd love to do that. But some of us, we don't know what that context is. We're going, what does that mean for me? Holy Spirit, show us. Some of us have lots of different contexts. Holy Spirit, show us where you want us to invest. Show us where you've placed us. Show us where we can grow in our discipleship. And show us if there's anything stopping us. Show us what our fears or anxieties are that are stopping us or preventing us from fully becoming the disciples that you want us to be. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit what he's saying to you now. Some of us just don't want to take that step because we're just too scared of something that might happen. And if that's the case, then the Holy Spirit just wants to come and minister to you and we'd love to pray for you. Maybe we just don't feel safe there. And Jesus just wants us to know that he's with us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He's got our back on this one. He's got our back. We're not going alone. The places he sent us to, we don't go in there alone. We go in there with our dad. He's got all the resources of heaven. And so if you need to, if you just need to acknowledge that and just we'd, again we'd love to pray for you so why don't you just come if you want to respond to any of these things I've been saying if you want to just be commissioned to go if you want to come and say yep yeah, that's me I'm just you know I need to get over this such and such a hurdle or if God is doing anything else in your life today if you've come and you just need hope if you just need a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit just come we've got plenty of space and we've got plenty of time just come now and we would love to pray for you. Those of you who want to come, come now. We would love to pray for you. Thank you, guys. Come on. Thank you. Bless you, guys. Keep coming. Don't worry about being the first. It's fine. They'll all come. It's fine. Yeah, thank you for your presence. We've sung Hope of the Nations. We've sung Open Wide the Doors and Let the Music Play. We've sung all those things this morning. Just keep, take, take a step forward, guys. Take a step forward take a step forward so there's more space and then I'd like some of you church people to come and pray for these folks as well I'd like you to come so fellas and ladies if you're part of the church if you're part of a house group if you release the minister come and just stand with these folks and just start to pray God's blessing on them ask them briefly why they've come and then start to pray God's blessing on them